Amen. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. God's good. Praise the Lord. It's good to have each of you with us this morning. As Pastor Tim has said, we're honored and blessed to have you here today worshiping with us. If you're watching us online, thank you so much for joining us on this Resurrection Sunday morning. This is the day the Lord has made. And we've made a decision, right? What I do with the day is up to me. And we're going to rejoice. And, you know, we, we get excited about the Super Bowl of, of Christianity, you know, Resurrection Sunday and all of those other things. But I hope you understand, too, that we don't just celebrate this date on a calendar once a year. But it's something we should be excited about and, and, and really tapping into every day of our life. Amen? Because resurrection isn't a day. It isn't a date. It isn't an event. Resurrection is a person. His, his name is Jesus. He, Jesus said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And how many of you know that Jesus said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. So guess what? Every single moment of every day of your life, you have resurrection life, resurrection power, and, and, and Jesus all available to you every day, Amen. which is why this is the day the Lord's made, so I'm going to rejoice in spite of what's going on around me. Amen? Amen? All right. Praise the Lord. Well, I've preached myself happy already, and I hope that you're happy as well. I want to share some things. We're starting a series this morning. It'll go a couple of weeks, and we'll tell you a little bit more about it as we kind of get into it. But there's really two, a couple of layers to this message today. Uh, I have, you've heard me probably comment quite often about many times one of the most difficult or a couple of the most difficult seasons to preach a message is, is during Christmas and Easter because everybody knows the story, Right? I mean, we know the story, or at least we, most, almost everybody, at least, you know, if you, maybe somebody hasn't been raised in a church, or, you know, they kind of maybe miss the whole Passion of the Christ movie, and so, uh, uh, you know, and you might say, start to talk to them, and, oh, yeah, 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 that's right, that one guy that died, and then later he rose again, or he's alive again, yeah, I forgot about that, but yeah, uh, but for the most part, we know the story, and so there's a couple of things I want to point out this morning, we're going to cover a little bit of familiar ground, but I want you to sort of listen to, to, to what's happening, I'm going to start with John chapter 20, and uh, about a month, maybe six weeks ago, Pastor John, I remember we were, uh, the pastoral staff was together, and we went through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the account of what happened from, really from the, the trial, the conviction, the crucifixion, his death, his burial, and then his resurrection. We went through all four Gospels, <clears throat> and it's amazing. You would think that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all following somebody else, <laughs> And yet we all, I think we understand that if you and I, or if we took four of us and we all encountered something, we would probably see it a little bit differently. And also remember that this narrative that has been written down was written down years after all of the events that had happened. And, and, and you know, some of them are, are writing the recollections because probably they've been asked, like, would you tell me the story one more time? Tell me, tell me it again. And so they finally just wrote it down because they got tired of having to tell the story all the time and they wanted to save it for future generations. And so in John chapter 20 and verse one, we read these words, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Who, who, who can tell me who that was? John. And what gospel are we reading? John. Who wrote this down? John. You think John might have a little bit of a like, you know what, I, just by the way, I'm the one he loved the most. I'm not going to call, I'm not pointing out too much, but, you know, Jesus loved one more than everybody else. <laughs> oh, praise God. <clears throat> she ran and found Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and she said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple... The other disciple was faster than Peter, and he beat him to the tomb. 
basically what he said. <laughs> they were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived, <laughs> and he went and see, inside, and he spoiled the crime scene, touched all kinds of stuff. No, he doesn't say that. <laughs> Peter arrived, and he went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. While the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings, and then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and that other disciple that Jesus loved the most who was faster than Peter, he saw and he believed. Don't want anybody to know who that was, but we know who it was. Verse 9. For until then, now this is after the fact, for until then they still hadn't understood the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. And if they didn't understand the scripture that, that says that Jesus must rise from the dead, then there's a pretty good chance that they didn't understand Jesus had to die. Amen? And so when we read this and, and kind of go over this, and, and we're, we are so used to, and, and, and maybe a certain amount of conditioned to the excitement of this text, the excitement of what's happening, and, and, and again, just a brief flyover, Mary comes to the tomb, it's been after, uh, uh, you know, Jesus was buried, she shows up at the tomb, he's not there, and, and, and things start to happen, and we get excited, woohoo, woohoo, Jesus must be alive, he's not in the tomb, yay, and we're all excited because we know the story, and we just skip over all kinds of different things that are there, but, but when I was reading this, this is about a month ago, and I was just kind of going through it, sort of verse by verse, and word by word, I was blown away at the next verse, how many of you want to get blown away? away on a, on a Easter Sunday morning. I could not believe the words that I read. It, it just caused a great big, huh? Wait, what? When I read it, here's verse, now, now here, Mary comes to the tomb. Jesus isn't there. She goes and tells Peter and John. They run to the tomb. Peter is, is slower than John. John runs into the, uh, to, at the tomb. Peter goes in. John says, I believed. And then verse 10 says, <laughs> then they went home. Wait, what? They went home. Now, does anybody else find that kind of odd? I mean, does anybody else, because we're excited. Woo, he's alive, he's alive, it's the resurrection. Yes, Jesus is alive. They went home. What? Why would they go home? Weren't they at least even just a little bit curious? Like, wait a minute, he, he was in the tomb. We saw him put him in the tomb, but he's gone. Where is he? I don't know, where is he? <laughs> Whose turn was it to watch Jesus? Because he's gone. Nobody thought to ask the question. Nobody, they just went home. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, well, <clears throat> all right, guess we're done. Time to go home. It doesn't make sense to me at all. Now, if you were here Friday night, in 30 years of pastoring this church, my favorite ending of a service ever, last Friday night. Because, and I don't know if some of you caught, I wanted the awkward feel of an ending. If you were here, uh, uh, you know, we just sang a quiet song at the end. Uh, a couple of things were going on on the screen, and we literally just walked away. And I know that some, I could feel it because I, I, in fact, the tech booth, even somebody in the booth was kind of like, wait a minute, is there something else? Or like, are we supposed to, is it over? Is there more to come? And I think that's what was happening at the cross. Jesus died, and, and some of his closest followers and his disciples, they were there, and it's kind of like, what do we do now? He's gone. He's dead. 
I didn't think he was going to die. I, I thought something was going to happen. And they, when that spear was thrust into the side of Jesus, when he breathed his last breath and he said the things that he said, and then he hung his head and he died, he gave up the ghost. I think that many of the disciples were like, what do we do now? Where do we go? And I wanted you to feel that tension. I wanted you to feel that awkwardness because I really think that's what the disciples felt and could partly be the reason that, well, we're going home. We're going home. Now, if you're familiar at all with the ministry of Jesus, the story of Jesus, Jesus <clears throat> made some pretty bold claims about who he was. And in fact, they were, some of those claims were the ones that got him into trouble because he said things and he attributed to himself things that were really only attributed to God before Jesus came on the scene. And, and as Jesus began to make declarations, boldly declaring who he was, and I'm going to come back to the they went home thing in a minute. I want to I want to build another layer for you this morning because in 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 the ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus, as he was doing what he was doing, he was making bold claims. He was a great teacher. He expounded the truth in such a way that people they hadn't heard it before. At one point, they said, "You know what? We've never heard a person speak with as much authority as Jesus," because he knew he was the truth. And so he would make statements like this. He, he, Jesus made the claim uh, uh, that he had the power to forgive sins. Now, nobody had ever said that before. You see, we just pass over this. We just sort of read it, accept it, go on. But when Jesus made the claim, I'm going to forgive sins, the religious elite were in an uproar because they'd never heard anybody say something like that before. He claimed to be greater than the temple, and it was the temple that was the pride and the joy of Israel. He made the claim uh, that, that, he was going, that he was greater than the prophets. He was greater than Moses. He was greater than Abraham. And those are fighting words. What are you talking about, greater than Abraham? There's nobody that's been greater than Abraham. Nobody greater than Moses. And here you are, the son of a carpenter, a nobody, and you're saying you're greater? I don't think so. And it was those statements that really got him into some of the trouble of hot water that he ended up getting into. We find in John chapter 6, great passage, long, long chapter. But in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And he preaches. And, 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 you know, when people get free food and free stuff, it's kind of like, hey, let's make him the king. Because we can get filet of fish sandwiches all the time. You know, this is awesome. And so Jesus is like, no, 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 not, not time yet, not time yet, not time yet. Gets in a boat, goes to the south part of the Sea of Galilee, gets out of the boat. There's a crowd there. And I think some of the crowd that heard, you know, texting each other, hey, we got free fish sandwiches. Maybe you can get one kind of a thing. And so Jesus is preaching again. And as he's preaching and the crowds are gathering the crowds, Jesus does something that is definitely not ministry building 101. Because he begins to talk, and he's beginning to teach, and he's beginning to tell people all of the things that were going to happen. And as he begins to talk, he says, you know, you're with me, you're following me because of food. But he said, if you really want to be a follower, you're going to have to, and this is, this is like plug your ears almost kind of like, a, this is so gross, and it's so weird to even hear this <laughs> after 2,000 years. But Jesus said, you're going to have to drink my blood and eat my body. Now, He's not talking about cannibalism. He's not talking about literally doing that. He's talking about a relationship. He's talking about partaking of the life and nature of himself. But when they heard that, kind of like when we hear that, what are you talking about? 
talking about. That doesn't make sense. And the people who had followed Jesus, the followers of Jesus, the ones who kind of put up with, all right, you know, that whole thing about forgiving sins, that's kind of tough to take, but, but all right, I, I still believe. And, and that whole thing about you're greater than Moses, I don't know, didn't know Moses, but you're pretty cool, so maybe you are. Abraham, that's a tough one. I don't know. My in-laws hate it that I'm following you because they like Abraham. You know, all of those things. And then finally when he got to this point, and he says, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. In, in John chapter 6 and verse 66, <laughs> a lot of people hit the delete button. They, they unfollowed, they unfriended Jesus right here. Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. The straw broke the camel's back. They liked it when he was talking about love. They liked it when he was confounding the wise. They liked it when he was healing people. They liked it when he was giving out free food, but they didn't like it so much when he began to just get kind of gross and weird and offensive. And so as Jesus, I think, sees the crowds leaving, he, he says this to his disciples, verse 67, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter, he answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus, you're the only one whose words have life. I recognize it. I sense it. I know it. And, and, and we are with you until the end, Peter was implying. He says in the next verse, verse 69, we have come. This is so, so, so important. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. We have come to believe. We are convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt. Even though you said you could forgive sins, but we've thought all our lives that only God could do it. Even though you said you're greater than Moses, you're greater than Abraham. Even though you've said these things that confound us, that confuse us. We have come to a point. We have come through a process of persuasion. And we have staked our life. We have staked our future. We've staked, staked and placed our economic future. Everything that we own, everything that we have to our own detriment. We have placed our trust in you, and we believe you're the Messiah. Is that not powerful? Is that not awesome? That was their understanding. That was their mindset. That's what they were thinking. That's what they were living their life with and why they were living their life. Many people left. We talked a little bit last week about the triumphal entry. And the popularity of Jesus was great and high, and, and everybody was hailing him as the Messiah. It seemed like everything was lining up, and, and, and I'm sure some of them were so excited to be alive at the time. Man, we get to see the Messiah, the one that's been prophesied about, the one that we've been hearing about ever since we were a little child, this, this, this Messiah that was going to arrive. We are alive at that time. This is awesome. Maybe you think that'd be great, huh? Be so cool to be alive at that time. But now, fast forward a little bit. What are they doing? They're standing here looking at a cross. And they're seeing the one that they believed, the Messiah, who did miracles, who confounded the wise, who confronted people. And they see him hanging on a cross. And they hear his words, and they see him labor to breathe. And they're following along, and they're watching, and... and, and I think there was a certain amount of disbelief. It's like, how can this be happening? What is going on? 
I thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was God's son. I thought he was the one who was going to liberate us and set the captives free. I thought that's who he was. And when the spear was thrust into his side and the water and the blood came out and it was a gory, horrible scene, I think they looked on in disbelief of thinking, how in the world, how in the world, certainly God would not allow some foreign power to kill the Messiah. But he died. And I think they were in disbelief. I cannot believe it. They took him from the cross and they buried him in a tomb. Sealed the tomb. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, Jesus was dead. Gone. And along with Jesus' death, every hope, every dream, everything that they thought that the future was going to be was erased. I think some of them were wondering, what do we do now? We go back to fishing? Sold my boat, got rid of my nets. <laughs> what am I going to do? How do I start over? They're disappointed. They're discouraged. And we know. And if we just would pause at that moment in history, there was not one. Maybe Mary, his mother, might have been about the only one. But there's a really, really good chance that nobody believed, other than her, nobody believed that Jesus was the Messiah. No one. Their actions show us what they believed. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich person who was a follower of Jesus, he went to Pilate. He said, hey, can we take the body of Jesus down from the cross? Can we get it ready? I know that, you know, the Sabbath and all those things are coming. We can't do it right now, but, but can, we, can we at least put him in the tomb? And, you know, he got some burial cloths and things like that and kind of got it ready. They fully anticipated that Jesus was going to do what dead people do. What do dead people do? They stay dead. So they prepared him for burial. Mary Magdalene, as we just read, and other gospels say that Mary Magdalene and, and, and others came to anoint the body of Jesus on that first, really, Sunday morning, that, that Jesus, they, they came to anoint his body to prepare it for burial. Why? Because they fully expected for Jesus to do what dead people do, and that's to stay dead. That's what they thought was going to happen. They were disappointed and they were discouraged. And I think that they were in great disbelief. And they were probably like, what's the point? Why bother following Jesus any longer? He's not going anywhere. Because he's dead. Gone. He's buried. And every one of our thoughts, hopes, dreams, gone with him. I mean, if he couldn't keep himself alive, then why bother continuing to follow him? And so in recap, here's what we know. According to According to this text in John chapter 20, he's not in the tomb anymore. Nobody knows where he is at this point. Not in the tomb. Mary tells Peter and John he's not there. Peter and John run to the tomb, see and confirm. Now, John later says, yeah, I believed. I'm kind of like, I don't know if you really believed as much as you say you did. But not one person wondered, where is he? Not one person went to look for him. Not one person. We find in verses 11 to 18 that, that Mary was walking, Mary Magdalene was in the garden, and a gardener showed up. Come to find out later, it was revealed to her that it was Jesus. Other gospels, other gospel writers say that when uh, uh, Jesus appeared, that Mary went to the disciples. Some said, you know what? She's crazy. She's whacked. Don't believe what she's saying. Others were confused. Others were afraid. And so there's a lot of things that are going on. There's a lot of layers that are here, but, but I think we could all agree that they believed that Jesus was going to do what dead people do and, they, and dead people stay dead. 
verse 20. Verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 19. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. So we start Sunday morning, Jesus is gone. They're excited. Uh, Mark, I'm sorry, uh, John and Peter are excited. We're going home. (laughs) They're now in the evening, and they're behind locked doors because they're afraid. And again, I want to ask you this question. Why are they hiding from the Jews instead of looking for Jesus? Why are they hiding from the Jews instead of asking themselves, well, where is he? Did somebody steal him? Did he raise from the dead? What's going on? And and are they going to blame us? Are they going to find us complicit? It says that they were hiding. And again, the question that I'm picking at a little bit this morning, they were hiding instead of looking. They were hiding instead of looking. And, and, you know, John here, this gospel, says that they were afraid of the Jews. And I can understand some of the pressure. They thought perhaps, at least this is what I've been taught and what I've been told and what I've read and what I've heard, that they were concerned, they were afraid that they were going to be next. He killed the leader, so, you know, it stands to reason, right? If we kill the leader, we're going to go after the rest of them. But it didn't seem to bother Peter and John when they ran to the tomb. They weren't afraid of the religious leaders at that point. They weren't afraid of anybody at that point. And if I was somebody looking for the followers of Jesus, I think the, the, the scene of the crime, I, I think that the tomb would be the first place I would go to try to find a follower of Jesus. So perhaps they were afraid. Perhaps they were hiding because they were afraid of the Jews. But I think it's something more than that. I think, honestly think that it's something more than that. Maybe you've had this happen in your life. If we had two services, I would blame whatever service this wasn't. (laughs) But we're not. But I think all of us have had this happen where maybe we've said some things that were unkind or mean or wrong towards another person. I know nobody, none of you would have, you've experienced that, I'm sure. You've had somebody speak badly of you. But you would never do that. And then it, Word of what you have said gets back to that other person, and they know you're the one that began to spread that lie, that rumor, or or that gossip, whatever it is. How many of you have ever experienced that, first of all? Anyone? How many of you know that that first meeting when, let's say it's Pastor John's been, he hasn't, but let's say Pastor John's been spreading lies about me, and, and I find out about it, and I'm a little bit hacked off, and that very first time that that he and I would interact or meet, How many of you know that would be a little bit uncomfortable? Awkward. Right? If if, if you've maybe done something in your life that you're not proud of, and you know that others know, and you don't want it, you know, you're, you're embarrassed because of what's happened, and that first interaction when they know what happened, and they know what you did, and they know all the things that went down, and now you're feeling a little bit awkward, and it's like, I don't want to be in the presence of that other person because they know something about me that I would rather keep hidden. I'd rather keep covered up. I'd rather not have the world know about those things. And so they were hiding. They were afraid. And I think we've all experienced that fear to a certain extent that we would prefer to stay hidden. We would prefer to stay kind of in the background. And when I read that, when I hear that, when I think about that, it immediately draws my attention back to the garden, back to the garden of Eve, where Adam, I'll try that all again, the garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve, wow, that shouldn't have been such a mouthful. 
Good thing I'm a professional speaker. So, in the Garden of Eden, with Adam and Eve, and you know the story at least somewhat, God created everything. Said, you know, he came and he fellowshiped with them all the time, you know, in the cool of the day. Jesus went and talked to them and hung out, and they just had a great time. We know the story that, that you know, God said, don't eat of this tree. So I've created all these trees. They're beautiful to look at, and I've created some trees that are good to eat. Don't get them mixed up. Pine cones are not good to eat, but apples are. All right, so maybe it was trial and error in the garden. I was that was one to look at, apparently. I shouldn't have ate that one. So anyway, they, they ate of the fruit that they were not to eat, the forbidden fruit. And immediately something happened. Immediately something changed. And I, 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 this part of the story, I think, gets, gets misrepresented sometimes. We know that, according to Scripture, we know that when Adam and Eve, in, 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 a, in essence, they rebelled against God, did what God said not to do. And God said that the day that you do that, you're going to die. Now, we know that they didn't physically die, but something in them died. It was the spirit of life. It was the resurrection life, in a sense. There hadn't been a resurrection, but it was the life of God that was on the inside of them. Their spirit was alive to God. And the moment that they sinned, they became separated from God because that's what sin does. Sin brings death. Death brings separation. I made this comment many times. Let me say it one more time to you. Uh, again, there's, when the Bible talks about death, three different kinds of death that are in the Bible. There's physical death that we are all, uh, all familiar with. A physical death separates a person from this life. Death always brings separation. Spiritual death brings separation from God. God is the author of life, but spiritual death will bring a separation from God. And then there's the last or the final or the second death, and that is eternity separated from God. You do not want that. You don't want any of them, but you don't want that one because there's no coming back from that one. And that's why Jesus came. And so when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did they do? Adam and Eve hid from God because they were afraid, and they were afraid because they were ashamed. Adam and Eve hid from God in the garden because they were afraid, and they were afraid because they were ashamed. They recognized, and what did they do? They fashioned some things to cover themselves, and we do similar things. We try to do things to cover our shame, to cover our guilt, to cover how we feel and what's going on in our lives. So everything that's happened up to this point, Mary Magdalene, Finds that Jesus has been, he's gone. They don't know where he is. And all of those things happen. And then she has the encounter with Jesus in the garden. And then in verse 20, one more time, we read these words. Come back to me. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind the locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, everybody say suddenly. Suddenly, suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Now, we all go, woohoo! He's alive! Yay! <coughs> I wooed <coughs> a little too much. <coughs> I lost my voice. I think it went to about the fourth row there. <coughs> Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. This Jesus that was nowhere to be found is suddenly here. And we get excited about that. We rejoice about that. We're happy. And I love what Jesus, first of all, didn't do. Jesus didn't go like, you bunch of reprobates, man. You left me hanging on a cross. I cannot believe that you abandoned me in my time of need. You denied me. He didn't do that. 
Before they could react, before they could uh uh-oh, before they could do anything at all, Jesus said, peace be with you. Peace be with you. You see, Jesus did what he saw his heavenly father do. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and they sinned, God showed up at the moment that they sinned. And, and the way I've heard it taught many times, in fact, the way that I have sometimes taught it is like God showed up at that moment and it was, uh-oh, you screwed up. And God showed up at the, beware lest your sin find you out. I don't think it was that way at all. I think that God showed up in the garden at the moment of their greatest need. And God was presenting himself to them. And he's like, where are you guys? Something has happened. Something's gone wrong. And I am the only one that can help you. I'm the only one who can fix it. I'm the only one that has the power or the ability to bring you out of what you're into right now. And I can make things better. But you're hiding yourself. You're covered up. And Jesus did what he did as he saw his father do. He did what he did in ministry. He's walking. He goes, man, I got to go. I got to go to this well right here because there's somebody who needs me. He encounters this, this person at the well that we know now, the woman at the well. And, and he says, yeah, I've got some eternal water. I got some living water. I have some eternal life. She's like, yeah, I want it. And Jesus did what he saw his father do. He showed up, confronted her at her greatest need. It wasn't living water. It was to deal with something first. He said, said, go get your husband. Suddenly all that shame and all of that guilt and all of that pain came rushing back into her life. Jesus, I thought you were going to give her living water. Go get your husband. She said, I'm not married. I know you're not married. You've had five husbands and you're living with somebody else that's not your husband right now, implying that Perhaps he was the husband of somebody else. Things weren't real good for her. Jesus brought her. You see, we think that sometimes grace and the love of God is just just Jesus excusing those things and just let everybody do what they want to do. We love the story of the woman who was caught in the the act of adultery. And Jesus stoops down. He writes in the sand. He said, you're without guilt. You know, throw the first stone. They all drop the stones. Jesus said, where's your accuser? And they're like, she's like, they're gone. Well, then I'm not going to accuse you anymore. And we stop. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, well, I don't accuse you. I don't, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus ministered to the outcasts. Jesus loved and, and provided and went to all of those people that had been outcast and rejected by a religious system that only, only loved or only ministered to those that were just like them. And so Jesus did what he saw his father do. What he did in ministry, he showed up. He showed up. And when he showed up, he said, peace be to you. Now, I don't know, that they, I don't know what the character of, of these disciples were. I don't know if they were kind of like people that, you know, been together for three years, good-natured ribbing, good-natured teasing that goes on. I don't think this was that moment. But had it been this moment, had it been kind of like this, and these people had that kind of relationship, do you not think that a guy like Thaddeus would have said to Peter, when Mary now finally is convincing, he would say, he's alive. I've seen him. I, I, I've see, I know he's alive, and she's fired up about it. And, and I'm wondering if the disciples aren't kind of like thinking, you know, did we ever find out if Jesus holds a grudge? And Thaddeus says to Peter, oh, Peter, you are in trouble. You are in big trouble. Because when Jesus sees you, he's going to be ticked off. 
because you were like, oh, yeah, here's Big Peter. Yeah, I'm going to die for you. I'm never going to turn. cock a doo doo And the other disciples, they, many of them, many of them, they viewed the cross and everything that, that went on. They viewed it from the grandstands. They were kind of hiding at that point. Every one of them turned and ran. And so when Jesus shows up, don't you think that there might have been that first feeling of awkwardness? Like, uh-oh. And I think that's why Jesus, without missing a beat, said, peace be with you. Peace be with you. We think of peace being the absence of conflict. That's not what Jesus was saying. It's the word shalom, and the word shalom means when everything is restored, everything is put back, everything is right. Jesus, without missing a beat, said, it's okay. Everything's restored. Everything's put back. Everything's good. It's good. I had to do the things that happened. Jesus shows up at our point when it seems like he's nowhere to be found, when it seems like he, nothing is good, nothing is around us, Jesus shows up. He shows up. We think of, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Sometimes he's knocking. A lot of times he shows up. He's there. Problem is, we just don't recognize it. We don't see it because we're blinded to those things. We're going to receive communion in just a moment, and uh, <clears throat> ask Pat to come and play. And, and uh, Colossians chapter one and verse twenty. Colossians one twenty says this, and if you want to prepare yourself, we've got the self serve communion things. It says, "By the blood of His cross, everything. Everybody say everything. everything. Everything in heaven and earth is brought back to Himself. That's shalom." Everything is restored. Everything is put back in its proper order and place. I've discovered as I've gotten older, I've gotten taller. It is far harder to reach the floor. <laughs> By the blood of his cross, everything in heaven and earth is brought back to himself, back to its original intent, restored to innocence again. Oh, the power. Oh, the power. Amen? Oh, the power. You know, worship team, would you come? We're going to get ready to do that. Verse 21. Even though you were once distant from him, living in the shadows of your evil thoughts and actions, he reconnected you back to himself. Woo! Praise God. He released his supernatural peace to you through the sacrifice of his own body as the sin payment on your behalf so that you would dwell in his presence. And now, everybody say now. There is nothing between you and your father God. He sees you as holy, flawless, and restored. And now some of you are like, yeah, but what about? I'm not sure. Some of you have perhaps grown up in a religious system that has marginalized, a religious system that has brought you shame and guilt, because shame, fear, and guilt will motivate, but it doesn't bring change. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
So would you bow your heads this morning and would you close your eyes? And I want, us, I want us to thank God for the broken body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was on that cross that he was crucified and that he died. Praise God, three days later he rose again. So our precious Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you this morning. Father, we thank you for the great love wherewith you have loved us. And I thank you, Father, that it's by the blood of Jesus that we've been restored back to favor. Everything has been made right with you. So, Father, as we consider the bread, we thank you that your body was broken so that ours could be made well. And, Father, we thank you that it's by that broken body of Jesus that our bodies are made well. So, Father, together we receive that body of Christ, and we receive life from it in Jesus' name. Let's receive together. Take the cup. Precious Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for the cup and what it represents. We thank you that that cup represents the blood of Jesus. And Father, I thank you there isn't anything, there is not one thing that can redeem us, that can set us free, that can restore us back to favor with you, but your blood. And I thank you that that blood was willingly shed, willingly given to us. Thank you for that eternal redemption. Let's receive together. Hallelujah. Thank you, Heavenly Father. With your heads bowed and with your eyes closed, if you're here today and you've never made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, maybe you've been laboring under shame or guilt or things from the past, there's an answer and his name's Jesus. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to be born again. Would you raise your hand today? Just say, I just want to lead you in a very simple and quick prayer. Anyone else say, Pastor, please pray with me. Anyone at all? Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the men and women in this congregation. I thank you for what you're doing in and among us in this church. Father, we are so thankful. We are so grateful that... When it seems like you're not here, when it seems like you're not around, that you are here with us. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning.